0: Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 196, The Fortresses Fall. As always, I want to thank our newest patrons. So, a big thank you to Fred McGill, Victor Tvetanov, Tom Malone, Radi Radev, and welcome back to Kirill Staikov. As always, you can support this for the, the podcast for as little as a dollar an episode and get some Patreon benefits. So, if you're curious to see what kind of benefits you can get, just go to the Patreon linked in the episode description. I also want to mention I've been talking with, uh, some Fulbright alumni who created a kind of, uh, or working on a documentary about the kind of experience of Jews in Bulgaria in the last couple decades. And one of them leads a kind of interesting sounding tour group. If you are, you know, have some kind of Jewish background from the Balkans, you can try checking out SephardicBalkans.com. They do kind of heritage tours. It might be interesting if that's, uh, if that's your kind of thing. If you had that kind of background, because It's very interesting history, and I'm looking forward to, I'm kind of gathering sources and connections to cover that in more detail once we get to, well, events in the future, let's say. But with that, let's get into this episode. Last time, we saw a peace agreement go up in flames as the Ottoman Empire was racked by a violent coup that brought it back into the war. Fighting resumed with a major Ottoman counterattack, which attempted to combine advances from Gallipoli to Chetalja with a landing on the north coast of the Sea of Marmara, intended to relieve the siege of Adrianople. However, all these attacks were beaten back by the Bulgarians. Meanwhile, the the sieges of Skutari and Yanina continued despite attempts by Greece and Montenegro to finally take these cities before the war formally ends. Now, With peace talks essentially back to square one, the rift between Bulgaria and Greece, and Bulgaria and Serbia, and even Romania, are only growing as Sofia's dangerous position, surrounded by potentially hostile states, slowly comes into clarity. So, we specifically left off on the 27th of January, 1913, when Serbia, Greece, and Montenegro may have met in Zurich to agree on actions against Bulgaria, though, Only one of my sources mentioned that. I'm not confident it happened, but, you know, the the intention was there regardless. What is clear is that Bulgaria's neighbors are slowly coming to an agreement. From January 30th until February 2nd, further negotiations with Romania occurred where, backed by Austria-Hungary, Bucharest gradually asked for more and more Bulgarian territory. This was initially focused on just Silistra, but then on more and more of southern Dobruja, and eventually all of southern Dobruja. But how much of a threat was Romania at this time? Well, Romania possessed the largest peacetime army in the region along with the largest population. It was about 7 million compared to Bulgaria's 4.3 million or Serbia's 2.9 million. However, the Romanian army hadn't fought a war since 1878, with the closest closest experience being the suppression of a peasant revolt back in 1907, so they definitely lacked combat experience. At this time, Romania was a close ally of Austria-Hungary. But you may be wondering why. After all, Romania wanted southern Dobruja, sure, but it definitely wanted Transylvania more. Because... Transylvania was a territory where about half of its 5.2 million people were Romanians. So, you know, over 2.5 million Romanians lived there. Just as importantly, intense majorization policies, that's Hungarianization, to put it that way, were leading to a gradual decline in the number of Romanians living in Transylvania. So, Yeah, there's definitely some time pressure for the Romanians to potentially take Transylvania because every year that passes, they become a smaller part of the population and they in turn have kind of less of a claim on the territory. Now, compare that to the 282,000 people who at this time were living in southern Dobruja, and only 2.4% of them were Romanians. So literally just a few thousand Romanians lived there at all. Now, all these numbers are from different 1910 censuses in their respective countries. So the question remains, why was Bucharest willing to align itself to Vienna in order to get a territory with fewer than 7,000 Romanians living in it, at the expense of a territory with with about 3 million? Add to that the fact that, again, those Hungarian majoritization policies were quite oppressive towards those 3 million Romanians. Well, Austria-Hungary saw that massive Romanian population as a major national security issue. Keeping Romania friendly went a long way towards addressing that potential powder keg. It certainly helped that King Carol of Romania was German, so he was more inclined to Germany and its ally Austria-Hungary. Another aspect was the fact that the country also wanted to get Bessarabia back from Russia, Recall that Northern Dobruja was actually given to Romania instead of Bulgaria as compensation for giving Southern Bessarabia to Russia back in 1878, so more of this kind of trading of territory with Bulgaria always being the ultimate loser, it seems. So clearly Romania couldn't survive being an enemy of both Russia and Austria-Hungary, so between the two, Romania chose Austria-Hungary. However. Romanian public opinion was gradually becoming more pro-Russian at this time. But again, the government under the German king still sided with that bloc. So you can see there's beginning to be a bit of a tension and a kind of gap between public opinion and the government and the ruler. But, you know, we'll have to see how that plays out down the line. So the result of all this was a kind of grand game that played out like this. The great powers wanted control of Albania, for example so they encouraged Serbia to take more of Macedonia from Bulgaria as compensation. The Great Powers wanted to keep Transylvania and Bessarabia, so they encouraged Romania to take southern Dobruja and northern Dobruja from Bulgaria throughout these decades as compensation. In other words, throughout the region, the Great Powers are sort of ordering what they like off the menu and kind of leaving Bulgaria with the bill. You know, they're asking for territories that various Balkan states want, and the compensation is just take something from Bulgaria. Now, while Bulgaria still hoped to have Russian support in Macedonia, it was clear that basically nobody was going to back them against Romania when it came to southern Dobroja because both Russia and Austria-Hungary wanted to, you know, let Romania take what it wanted because they felt that would make it less likely that Romania would turn around and ask for Bessarabia. Statelova summarizes the situation at this moment in her biography of Prime Minister Geshov, writing, quote, Bulgaria was in an increasingly difficult position. The unanimity demonstrated by the Allies in London had long been eroding in the Balkans. Serbia and Greece had established themselves in the seized territories in Macedonia and were subjecting the Bulgarian population to senseless persecution. They were even helpfully offering each other towns that had been liberated by Bulgarian troops. More reports arrived about the conflicts between Bulgarian and Greek units. Athens was no longer satisfied with only Solon, Thessaloniki, and was tracing out a new border in southwest Macedonia. Belgrade was complaining loudly that it had not received an outlet to the Adriatic and was seeking parts of the quote-unquote undisputed zone. End quote. She goes on to point out that Geshov was by this point working hard to find a peaceful resolution to these conflicts. But… and this meant essentially both working to rein in the military and request Bulgarian diplomats abroad kind of help out. So there were a lot of internal factions that were for or against this, and it was quite complicated. Geshov knew that Bulgaria could not fight a multi-front war and that by this point the best option was to hope that the Great Powers, particularly Russia, might take Bulgaria's side. However, the realities I just mentioned made that unlikely. The Great Powers all wanted territory from Serbia, Greece, Romania, and the Ottoman Empire, not from Bulgaria. As such, they all seemed to have incentives to encourage everyone to take a slice of Bulgaria to improve their own chances of obtaining concessions. So by early February, the front lines of the war had settled into a stalemate, and the real action had become diplomatic. Romania was making demands, and on February the 9th, Serbia joined in as well. On that day, Serbian Prime Minister Pasic argued that Serbia had provided more support than their original agreement had envisioned, that Bulgaria was set to acquire Thrace, and that Serbia was not going to get the outlet to the Adriatic that it wanted. As a result of these three points, Serbia believed they deserved more of Macedonia. Of course, this conveniently ignored the fact that Bulgaria had made far greater sacrifices in the war, that Serbia's problems in Albania had nothing to do with Bulgaria, and that the territorial gains in Thrace were hard-won with Bulgarian lives. But for now, the Bulgarian government merely ignored this message. Geshov didn't want to potentially escalate conflict with Serbia while their forces were still fighting side-by-side at Adrianople, and the Bulgarians were still hoping that Russia might take their side. But while not much had really been happening militarily for the last several weeks, February 19th saw renewed fighting in and around the fortress of Yanina. Here, the Greek general had been sacked and replaced by Crown Prince Constantine, who had been preparing for another final assault on the fortress. This began on the 19th, with an assault on the fortress of Bizani, which covered the southern approaches to Yanina. But this assault was more of a feint, and the main attack would be on Yanina itself. By the late afternoon on the first day, the two Ottoman fortresses in the southern approaches had been surrounded, and by nightfall, their garrisons fled to Yanina, where they could. The next day, the fortress of Yanina itself finally surrendered. It was the first major change in the military situation on the ground in months. The Greeks took 33,000 prisoners, 108 pieces of artillery, and many other supplies. Remember, Yanina was never fully surrounded, so it was far better supplied than the other two Ottoman holdouts at Scutari and Adrianople. Now, this meant that Greece had effectively completed their operations against the Ottomans and could shift their attention fully to a potential fight against Bulgaria. That process began the very day Yanina fell, when fighting broke out between Bulgarians and Greeks in the town of Negrita, which is to the northeast of Thessaloniki at the mouth of the Struma River. The fighting there began when Bulgarians demanded a Greek ship submit to customs inspections in the port of Chayaz, The Greeks responded by moving in troops and attempting to isolate Bulgarian troops there. The Greeks occupied the high ground and fended off Bulgarian attacks. A few days later, the Bulgarians pulled back, fending off Greek attacks along the way. And on the fifth day, the two sides concluded the fight and immediately set up a commission to determine where exactly the line of control should run in order to hopefully avoid such clashes in the future. But it's clear that tensions are high, and while there are widely varied claims about the number of casualties and soldiers involved in all this, both Greek and Bulgarian blood has already been spilled here. So, at this point, Ottoman resistance in Europe is limited to Adrianople, Gallipoli, the Cetelja Line, and Scutari, still holding out against the Montenegrins. There, despite a total lack of progress since the siege began in October, the Montenegrins did receive some support uh, of basically from some northern Albanian groups who were you know, largely orthodox, adding about 3,000 soldiers to their ranks. But for now, the siege was still grinding on, with Montenegro frustrated that its ambitions in the war had thus far been checked in nearly every direction, as Serbia had taken territory that it wanted inland, and their advance south had been swiftly checked at Skutari. The next major event was at Adrianople. There, Bulgarian artillery had been pounding the city since the renewal of hostilities, hoping to demoralize its defenders. The city's civilians described the bombardments as, quote, furious, implacable, inhuman. End quote. But the tragedy of this strategy was that these shells had little impact on the fortifications itself. The besiegers had few ways to force their way into the city, and so they were instead resorting to psychological warfare and even attempts to jam the radio link to Constantinople, which Hall, one of the authors I've used here, refers to as perhaps the earliest attempt at electronic warfare. Things weren't that much easier for the besiegers. A Serbian soldier describes how, quote, "...the troops suffered greatly." The region around Adrianople was, for a distance of 15 kilometers, treeless and for the most part without water. In February, a terrible snowstorm raged, and we had to fight against typhus and for a while also against cholera. Bread, meat, and later on also wood had to come from Serbia. Quote. Once those Serbian reinforcements arrived, the Bulgarians felt it was time to attempt a final assault. Pressure had only increased since word of the fall of Yanina reached General Savov. Bulgarian high command knew that they were slowly being crushed between the harsh realities of their soldiers' declining morale and the massive casualties an assault on Adrianople would likely bring. But by this point, they knew they had no other options. The plan was to bombard three sectors before making the final assault on a fourth sector, which had not been subject to bombardment and which the Bulgarians had learned the Ottomans weren't too worried about. Thus, the attack rested more on surprise than the strength of the artillery. The forces facing the Ottomans at the the Chitalja line would also launch an attack at the same time to prevent and get ahead of any final attempts to relieve the siege. By the time this attack began on March the 11th, Adrianople was running low on food, and was getting desperate. But the Bulgarian plan worked, as the Ottoman commander rushed troops to the sectors facing bombardment, ensuring that once the main attack did come, he would not have the time to move those troops back to where they were now needed. By the third day of this attack, Bulgarian forces entered the city and captured its commander. The siege of Adrianople was finally over. Like with Yanina, the surrender of the fortress seemed to kick off a worsening of relations between Bulgaria and its allies. The Serbs, for one, felt the Ottoman commander should have been their prisoner because he had surrendered in the sector where they were fighting, even though it was Bulgarian cavalry that actually captured him. Overall, though, the victory was hailed as one of artillery and siege overall, foreshadowing the brutal fighting of the Western Front of the First World War that was now just over a year away. Misha Glenny describes Adrianople as, quote, the crowning misery of the Balkan Wars, end quote, before going on to write how, quote, estimates of those who died varied between 40,000 and 60,000. Military doctors described how the legs of thousands of Turkish soldiers froze solid in the trenches during the harsh winter, how the thick blanket of snow which fell in January was drenched in red for days after the resumption of hostilities at the beginning of February. When the Turkish commander, Shukri Pasha, evacuated his troops, he gave the order to destroy all stocks of bread in the city. The Bulgarian troops entered a vast mortuary, stepping over the dead bodies which littered the streets, victims of artillery shells, cholera, and above all else, of hunger. End Glennie then quotes a journalist who was there, and that journalist wrote, quote, "...the further into this island I go, the more ghastly this theater of blood." Here are lying those who can no longer move, but who nobody on this earth can protect anymore. They are living dead on the ground which will claim them maybe tomorrow, maybe the day after. Everywhere, bodies reduced to mere bones, blue hands ripped from their forearms, the bizarre gestures, empty eye sockets, open mouths as if calling in desperation, the shattered teeth behind the torn and blackened lips. End quote. But, Despite the horrors of this battle, news of Adrianople's fall was greeted with celebrations, not just in Bulgaria, but in France and in Russia. Constant notes that popular demonstrations in St. Petersburg were actually suppressed by mounted police with whips. Apparently, much like today, any popular excitement in Russia that isn't specifically sanctioned by the state is viewed with great suspicion and hostility. Constant also tells how Ferdinand and his sons entered the city less than 24 hours after its capture. There, he passed rows of captured Ottoman soldiers, reviewed the Bulgarians who had captured the city, and met with the Ottoman commander, who, after handing his sword to Ferdinand, was surprised when the Tsar returned it. In fact, the Ottoman commander was met with quite a lot of magnanimity, even when he arrived in Sofia, because there he was put up in the city's best hotel after being greeted at the station with these words, "'A welcome to your excellency,' The whole world admires both victors and vanquished. Bulgaria cherished profound respect towards the illustrious hero of Adrianople. Your Excellency may rest assured that our sincere sympathy and admiration." End quote. But all this pomp could not hide the brutal realities of the battle. General Fechev himself speculated later that it was probably entirely unnecessary and that Adrianople would likely have surrendered soon anyways. Thus, to many, the final assault was one more in a long line of needless bloodletting for the sake of pride. Hall writes how, quote, The Bulgarian capture of a large city with modern fortifications was a testament to the courage and initiative of the soldiers from a small country that lacked material and human resources. The Bulgarians were dazzled by the prospect of the acquisition of a city that offered little real political or economic advantage. In the process, they squandered men and resources that could have much better been utilized in securing their national aspiration in Macedonia. End quote. But, just how this would play out remained to be seen. For now, the loss of Adrianople seemed to indicate that an end of the war was imminent. But before that could happen, the great powers met in St. Petersburg on the 18th to resolve the Romanian-Bulgarian dispute over southern Dobruja and Sidistra. Russia, wanted to move Romania away from Vienna and towards itself, while Austria-Hungary wanted to keep them close. So what that meant was that everyone was interested in giving Bucharest whatever it wanted, without much concern for Bulgaria. Around the same time, Serbian and Bulgarian delegations were visiting the Russian capital to plead their cases. Both countries were offering themselves up as client states, but as the Bulgarian premier argued to the Russians, they could not create a great Bulgaria and a great Serbia at the same time. Now, although the Russians had initially sided with Bulgaria in its dispute over Serbia retaining bits of Macedonia that it were originally promised to Bulgaria in the peace agreement, ultimately it was the Serbian delegation which left St. Petersburg feeling hopeful. They had been told that Russia no longer intended to make Bulgaria a privileged client and that while Russia was Technically, to retain its commitment over Bulgaria's claim to Macedonia, they would find a way to satisfy Serbia's ambitions. On the same day the St. Petersburg Conference began, Greece was rocked by the news that its king had been assassinated in Thessaloniki. King George had been walking around the waterfront without protection and was shot by a self-proclaimed Greek socialist. Even though the Greek government denied that there was any political aspect of the killing, Referring to the assassin as basically an alcoholic vagrant. So while the king had been planning to abdicate in October, that meant that this didn't have major political ramifications. And by all accounts, the man was more or less just a mentally disturbed person. Uh, And so, yeah, this didn't have huge ramifications, which is odd. That's not usually the case when a king is assassinated. But this king was already on his way out and his son was more or less ready to take charge. While diplomats and royals were still discussing how the complex web of claims and disputes should all be resolved, the Ottomans did finally agree to an armistice on March the 25th. Six days later, negotiations were completed and a 10-day pause to fighting was agreed to. Two days after that, the Greeks concluded a draft peace agreement with the Ottomans. Now, by this point, the only place where the war was really still ongoing was the siege of Scutari. While these armistice discussions were all happening, Bulgarian commissions with both Greece and Serbia regarding the division of territory ultimately ended without coming to any firm conclusions. So, again, increasing the likelihood of potential conflict because nobody can come to any agreement on these kind of bilateral meetings. Then, on April the 10th, after more than six months of fighting, Skutari finally surrendered. Its garrison was allowed to depart with full military honors and even paid £10,000 by the King of Montenegro himself. So I guess that's what they had to do to finally get them to surrender. But this was even more of an ignominious end for the Montenegrin army than it seems because the garrison only really surrendered because it had already become clear that Scutari was going to be given to Albania. So the fact that the Montenegrins conquered it really had no practical effect. And Really, the fact that the great powers had decided that this was going to be Albania's city was already being forced by a naval blockade of Montenegro by the great powers. So, they had decided the fate of the city, and Montenegro would ultimately have little choice in the matter. Still, its surrender meant that the final three fortresses of the Ottomans had fallen. Apart now from the Gallipoli Peninsula and a strip of land outside of Constantinople itself, the Ottomans had been pushed out of Europe for the first time since the Middle Ages. Next time, we'll see yet more diplomatic discussions and the long-awaited final arrival of a peace treaty with the Ottomans. But with tensions between the Balkan League members at near boiling point, it's clear to everyone that the region might erupt into new spasms of violence at any moment. It's not going to be an ex- well, it's going to be an exciting episode, not a particularly happy episode, but still you won't want to miss the conclusion to the first Balkan War. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, you can check out more information at bghistorypodcast.com. And I'm in some talks now. I'm hoping soon to maybe restart the Bulgarian language version of the podcast, but I will keep you posted. So thank you for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one.